Chapter 1, Part 5 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 2, by Alexander Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave Gillespie. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 2, by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 1, Part 5. I had several conversations with the Queen Mother during the troubles in France, and Her Majesty always seemed to fear that if the existence of the prince should be discovered during the lifetime of his brother, the young king, malcontents, would make it a pretext for rebellion, because many medical men hold that the last-born of twins is in reality the elder, and if so, he was king by right while many others have a different opinion. In spite of this dread, the queen could never bring herself to destroy the written evidence of his birth, because in case of the death of the young king, she intended to have his twin brother proclaimed. She told me often that the written proofs were in her strong box. I gave the ill-starred prince such an education as I should have liked to receive myself and no acknowledged son of a king ever had a better. The only thing for which I have to reproach myself is that, without intending it, I caused him great unhappiness, for when he was nineteen years old, he had a burning desire to know who he was, and as he saw that I was determined to be silent, growing more firm the more he tormented me with questions, he made up his mind henceforward to disguise his curiosity and make me think that he believed himself a love child of my own. He began to call me father, although when we were alone I often assured him that he was mistaken. But at length I gave up combating this belief, which he perhaps only feigned to make me speak, and allowed him to think he was my son, contradicting him no more. But while he continued to dwell on this subject, he was meantime making every effort to find out who he really was. Two years passed thus, when, through an unfortunate piece of forgetfulness on my part, for which I greatly blame myself, he became acquainted with the truth. He knew that the king had lately sent me several messengers, and once having carelessly forgotten to lock up a casket containing letters from the queen and the cardinals, he read part and divined the rest through his natural intelligence, and later confessed to me that he had carried off the letter, which told most explicitly of his birth. I can recall that from this time on his manner to me showed no longer that respect for me in which I had brought him up, but became hectoring and rude, and that I could not imagine the reason for the change, for I never found out that he had searched my papers, and he never revealed to me how he got at the casket, whether he was aided by some workmen whom he did not wish to betray, or had employed other means. One day, however, he unguardedly asked me to show him the portraits of the late and the present king. I answered that those that existed were so poor that I was waiting till better ones were taken before having them in my house. This answer, which did not satisfy him, called forth the request to be allowed to go to Dijon. I found out afterward 
that he wanted to see a portrait of the king which was there and to get to the court, which was just then at St. John de Luz, because of the approaching marriage with the Infata, so that he might compare himself with his brother and see if there were any resemblance between them. Having knowledge of his plan, I never let him out of my sight. The young prince was at this time as beautiful as Cupid, and through the intervention of Cupid himself, he succeeded in getting hold of a portrait of his brother. One of the upper servants of the house, young girl, had taken his fancy, and he lavished such caresses on her, and inspired her with so much love, that although the whole household was strictly forbidden to give him anything without my permission, she procured him a portrait of the king. The unhappy prince saw the likeness at once, indeed no one could help seeing it, for the one portrait would serve equally well for either brother, and the sight produced such a fit of fury that he came to me crying out, There is my brother, and this tells me who I am, holding out a letter from Cardinal Mazarin, which he had stolen from me, and making a great commotion in my house. The dread, lest the prince should escape, and succeed in appearing at the marriage of his brother, made me so uneasy that I sent off a messenger to the king to tell him that my casket had been opened and asking for instructions. The king sent back word through the cardinal that we were both to be shut up till further orders, and that the prince was to be made to understand that the cause of our common misfortune was his absurd claim. I have since shared his prison but I believe that a decree of release has arrived from my heavenly judge, and for my soul's health, and for my ward's sake, I make this declaration, that he may know what measures to take in order to put an end to his ignominious estate, should the king die without children. Can any oath, imposed under threats, oblige one to be silent about such incredible events? which is nevertheless necessary that posterity should know. Such were the contents of the historical document given by the regent to the princess, and it suggests a crowd of questions. Who was the prince's governor? Was he a Burgundian? Was he simply a landed proprietor with some property and a country house in Burgundy? How far was his estate from Dijon? He must have been a man of note, for he enjoyed the most intimate confidence at the court of Louis XIII, either by virtue of his office or because he was a favorite of the king, the queen, and Cardinal Richelieu. Can we learn from the list of the nobles of Burgundy what member of their body disappeared from public life, along with a young ward whom he had brought up in his own house? just after the marriage of Louis XIV? Why did he not attach his signature to the declaration, which appears to be a hundred years old? Did he dictate it, when so near death that he had not strength to sign it? How did it find its way out of prison? And so forth. There is no answer to all these questions, and I, for my part, cannot undertake to affirm that the document is genuine. Abisulavi relates that he one day pressed the marshal for an answer to some questions on the matter, asking, amongst other things, if it were not true that the prisoner was an elder brother of Louis XIV, born without the knowledge 
of Louis XIII. The marshal appeared very much embarrassed, and although he did not entirely refuse to answer, what he said was not very explanatory. He averred that this important personage was neither the illegitimate brother of Louis XIV, nor the Duke of Monmouth, nor the Comte de Vermandois, nor the Duke de Beaufort, and so on, as so many writers had asserted. He called all their writings mere inventions, but added that almost every one of them had got hold of some true incidents, as, for instance, the order to kill the prisoner should he make himself known. Finally, he acknowledged that he knew the state secret and used the following words. All that I can tell you, Abby, is that when the prisoner died at the beginning of the century, at a very advanced age, he had ceased to be of such importance as when, at the beginning of his reign, Louis XIV shut him up for weighty reasons of state. The above was written down under the eyes of the marshal, and when Abbe Soulevy entreated him to say something further, which, while not actually revealing the secret, would yet satisfy his questioner's curiosity, the marshal answered, Read M. de Voltaire's latest writings on the subject, especially his concluding words, and reflect on them. With the exception of Dulard, all the critics have treated Soulevy's narrative with the most profound contempt. And we must confess that if it was an invention, it was a monstrous one, and that the concoction of the famous note in cipher was abominable. Such was the great secret. In order to find out, I had to allow myself five, twelve, seventeen, fifteen, fourteen, one, three times by eight, three. But unfortunately for those who would defend the morals of Mademoiselle de Valois, it would be difficult to traduce the character of herself, her lover, and her father, for what one knows of the trio justifies one in believing that the more infamous the conduct imputed to them, the more likely it is to be true. We cannot see the force of the objection that Lavoie would not have written in the following terms to Saint-Marc in 1687 about a bastard son of Anne of Austria. I see no objection to your removing Chevalier de Faisou from the prison in which he is confined, and putting your prisoner there till the one you are preparing for him is ready to receive him. And we cannot understand those who ask if St. Mar, following the example of the minister, would have said of a prince, until he is installed in the prison which is being prepared for him here, which has a chapel adjoining? Why should he have expressed himself otherwise? Does it evidence an abatement of consideration to call a prisoner a prisoner, and his prison a prison? A certain M. de saint Mihiel, published in a Vio volume in 1791 at Strasbourg in Paris, entitled Le Veritable Homme, Ditto Masque de Fur, Ouvrage dans laquelle on fait connaître sur preuve incastable à que le célèbre infortune de le jour quand est où il naquit. The wording of the title will give an idea of the bizarre and barbarous jargon in which the whole book is written. It would be difficult to imagine the vanity and self-satisfaction which inspire this new reader of riddles. 
If he had found the philosopher's stone or met a discovery which would transform the world, he could not exhibit more pride and pleasure. All things considered, the incontestable proofs of his theory do not decide the question definitely or place it above all attempts at refutation any more than does the evidence on which the other theories which preceded and followed his rest. But what he lacks before all other things is the talent for arranging and using his materials. With the most ordinary skill, he might have evolved a theory which would have defied criticism at least as successfully as the others, and he might have supported it by proofs, which if not incontestable, for no one has produced such, had at least moral presumption in their favor, which has great weight in such a mysterious and obscure affair, in trying to explain, which one can never leave on one side, the respect shown by Levois to the prisoner, to whom he always spoke standing and with uncovered head. According to M. Saint-Mihel, the man in the iron mask was a legitimate son of Anne of Austria and Mazarin. He avers that Mazarin was only a deacon and not a priest. When he became cardinal, having never taken priest's orders, according to the testimony of the Princess Palatine, consort of Philip I, Duke d'Orléans, and that it was therefore possible for him to marry, and that he did marry, Anne of Austria, in secret. Old Madame Beauvais, principal woman of the bedchamber to the Queen Mother, knew of this ridiculous marriage, and as the price of her secrecy obliged the Queen to comply with all her whims. To this circumstance, the principal bedchamber women owe the extensive privileges accorded them ever since in this country. The Queen Mother, consort of Louis XIII, had done worse than simply to fall in love with Mazarin. She had married him, for he had never been an ordained priest. He had only taken deacon's orders. If he had been a priest, his marriage would have been impossible. He grew terribly tired of the good Queen Mother, and did not live happily with her, which was only what he deserved for making such a marriage. She, the Queen Mother, was quite easy in her conscience about Cardinal Mazarin. He was not in priest's orders, and so could marry. The secret passage by which he reached the Queen's rooms every evening still exists in the Palais Royal. The Queen's manner of conducting affairs is influenced by the passion which dominates her. When she and the Cardinal converse together, their ardent love for each other is betrayed by their looks and gestures. It is plain to see that when obliged to part for a time, they do it with great reluctance. If what people say is true, that they are properly married, and that their union has been blessed by Père Vincent, the missioner, there is no harm in all that goes on between them, either in public or in private. The man in the iron mask told the apothecary in the Bastille that he thought he was about sixty years of age. Thus, he must have been born in 1644, just at the time when Anne of Austria was invested with the royal power, though it was really exercised by Mazarin. Can we find any incident recorded in history which lends support to the supposition that Anne of Austria had a son whose birth was kept as secret as her marriage to Mazarin? In 1644, 
and of austria being dissatisfied with her apartments in the louvre moved to the palais royal which had been left to the king by richelieu shortly after taking up residence there she was very ill with a severe attack of jaundice which was caused in the opinion of the doctors by worry anxiety and overwork and which pulled her down greatly this anxiety caused by the pressure of public business was most probably only dwelt on as a pretext for a pretended attack of illness and of austria had no cause for worry and anxiety until sixteen forty nine she did not begin to complain of the despotism of mazarin till toward the end of sixteen forty five she went frequently to the theatre during her first year of widowhood but took care to hide herself from view in her box abbe soulevie in volume six of the memoirs de richelieu published in seventeen ninety three controverted the opinions of m de saint michel and again advanced those which he had published some time before supporting them by a new array of reasons the fruitlessness of research in the archives of the bastille and the importance of the political events which were happening diverted the attention of the public for some years from the subject in the year eighteen hundred however the magasin encyclopedique published an article entitled memoire sur le problème historique et la méthode de la résorde appliquée à celui qui concerne l'âme au masque de fer signed c d o in which the author maintained that the prisoner was the first minister of the duke of mantua and says that his name was girolamo magni in the same year an octavo a volume of one hundred forty two pages was produced by M. Ruf Fazelac. It bore the title Recherches Historique et Critique sur l'âme au masque de fer du resultant des notions certaines sur ses prisonniers. These researches brought to light a secret correspondence relative to certain negotiations and intrigues, and to the abduction of a secretary of the Duke of Mantua, whose name was Mathioli, and not Girolamo Magni. In 1802, an octavo pamphlet containing 11 pages, of which the author was perhaps Baron Levier, but which was signed Reth, was published. It took the form of a letter to General Jourdain, and was dated from Turin, and gave many details about Mathioli and his family. It was entitled Veritable Clef de l'Historique de l'Homme au Masque de Fer. It proved that the secretary of the Duke of Mantua was carried off, masked, and imprisoned by order of Louis XIV in 1679. But it did not succeed in establishing as an undoubted fact that the secretary and the man in the iron mask were one and the same person. It may be remembered that M. Crawford, writing in 1798, had said in his l'histoire de la bastille i cannot doubt that the man in the iron mask was the son of anne of austria but and unable to decide whether he was a twin brother of louis fourteen or was born while the king and queen lived apart or during her widowhood m crawford 
in his Mélanger de l'histoire et de littérature tirée d'un portefeuille, demolished the theory advanced by Ruse Fazelac. In 1825, M. Delors discovered in the archives several letters relating to Mathioli and published his Histoire de l'Homme au Masque de Fer. This work was translated into English by George Agar Ellis and retranslated into French in 1830 under the title Histoire Authentique du Prisonnier d'État Canusans le Nom de Masque de Fer. It is in this work that the suggestion is made that the captive was the second son of Oliver Cromwell. In 1826, M. de Toul wrote that, in his opinion, the masked prisoner was none other than the Armenian patriarch. But six years later, the great success of my drama at the Odeon converted nearly everyone to the version which Soulevy was the chief exponent. The bibliophile Jacob is mistaken in asserting that I followed a tradition preserved in the family of the Duc de Choiseul. M. Le Duc de Bassano sent me a copy made under his personal supervision of a document drawn up for Napoleon, containing the results of some researches made by his orders on the subject of the man in the iron mask. The original MS, as well as that of the memoir de Duc de Richelieu, were the Duke told me, kept at the Foreign Office. In 1834, the Journal of the Institut Historique published a letter from M. Auguste Billiard, who stated that he had also made a copy of this document for the late Comte de Montalivet, Home Secretary under the Empire. M. Dufay gave his Histoire de la Bastille to the world in same year and was inclined to believe that the prisoner was a son of Buckingham. Besides the many important personages on whom the famous mask had been placed, there was one whom everyone had forgotten, although his name had been put forward by the minister Chamoliar. This was the celebrated superintendent of finance, Nicolas Fouquet. In 1837, Jacob, armed with documents and extracts, once more occupied himself with this Chinese puzzle on which so much ingenuity had been lavished, but of which no one had as yet got all the pieces into their places. Let us see if he succeeded better than his forerunners. The first feeling he awakes is one of surprise. It seems odd he should again bring up the case of Fouquet, who was condemned to imprisonment for life in 1664, confined in Pignerol, under the care of Saint-Marc, and whose death was announced, falsely according to Jacob, on March 23, 1680. The first thing to look for in trying to get at the true history of the mask is a sufficient reason of state to account for the persistent concealment of the prisoner's features till his death, and next, an explanation of the respect shown him by Louvois whose attitude toward him would have been extraordinary in any age, but was doubly so during the reign of Louis XIV, whose courtiers would have been the last persons in the world to render homage to the misfortunes of a man in disgrace with their master. Whatever the real motive of the king's anger against Fouquet 
may have been, whether Louis thought he arrogated to himself too much power or aspired to rival his master in the hearts of some of the king's mistresses, or even presumed to raise his eyes higher still, was not the utter ruin, the lifelong captivity, of his enemy enough to satiate the vengeance of the king? What could he desire more? Why should his anger, which seemed slaked in 1664, burst forth into hotter flames seventeen years later and lead him to inflict a new punishment? According to the bibliophile, the king being wearied by the continual petitions for pardon addressed to him by the superintendent's family, ordered them to be told that he was dead to rid himself of their supplications. Colbert's hatred, he said, was the immediate cause of Fouquet's fall. But even if this hatred hastened the catastrophe, are we to suppose that it pursued the delinquent beyond the sentence, through the long years of captivity, and renewing its energy, infected the minds of the king and his counselors? If that were so, how shall we explain the respect shown by Livois? Colbert would not have stood uncovered before Fouquet in prison. Why should Colbert's colleague have done so? It must, however, be confessed that of all existing theories, this one, thanks to the unlimited learning and research of the bibliophile, has the greatest number of documents with the various interpretations thereof, the greatest profusion of dates on its side. For it is certain, first, that the precautions taken when Fouquet was sent to Pignerol resembled in every respect those employed later by the custodians of the Iron Mask, both at the Ile Sainte Marguerite and at the Bastille. Second, that the majority of the traditions relative to the masked prisoner might apply to Fouquet. Third, that the Iron Mask was first heard of immediately after the announcement of the death of Fouquet in 1680. Fourth, that there exists no irrefragable proof that Fouquet's death really occurred in the above year. The decree of the Court of Justice, dated 20th December 1664, banished Fouquet from the kingdom for life. But the king was of the opinion that it would be dangerous to let the said Fouquet leave the country, in consideration of his intimate knowledge of the most important matters of state. Consequently, the sentence of perpetual banishment was commuted into that of perpetual imprisonment. The instructions signed by the king and remitted to Saint-Marc forbid him to permit Fouquet to hold any spoken or written communication with anyone whatsoever, or to leave his apartments for any cause, not even for exercise. The great mistrust felt by Louvois pervades all his letters to Saint-Marc. The precautions which he ordered to be kept up were quite as stringent as in the case of the Iron Mask. The report of the discovery of a shirt covered with writing by a friar, which Abbe Papin mentions, may perhaps be traced to the following extracts from two letters written by Louvois to Saint-Marc. Your letter has come to hand with a new handkerchief on which M. Fouquet has written. You can tell him that if he continues to employ his table linen as note paper, he must not be surprised if you refuse to supply him 
with any more. Pierre Papin asserts that a valet who served the masked prisoner died in his master's room. Now the man who waited on Fouquet, and who, like him, was sentenced to lifelong imprisonment, died in February 1680. Echoes of incidents which took place at Pignerol might have reached the Ile Saint Marguerite when Saint Mar transferred his former prisoner from one fortress to the other. The fine clothes and linen, the books, all those luxuries, in fact, that were lavished on the masked prisoner, were not withheld from Fouquet. The furniture of a second room at Pignerol cost over 1,200 livres. It is also known that until the year 1680, Saint-Marc had only two important prisoners at Pignerol, Fouquet and Lausanne. However, his former prisoner of Pignerol, according to Du Yonca's diary, must have reached the latter fortress before the end of August 1681, when Saint-Marc went to exile as governor. So that it was in the interval between the 23rd of March 1680, the alleged date of Fouquet's death, and the 1st of September 1681, that the Iron Mask appeared at Pignerol. And yet, Saint-Marc took only two prisoners to exile. One of these was probably the man in the Iron Mask. The other, who must have been Mathioli, died before the year 1687. For when Saint-Marc took over the governorship in the month of January of that year, of the Ile Saint-Marguerite, he brought only one prisoner thither with him. I have taken such good measures to guard my prisoner that I can answer to you for his safety. In the correspondence of Livois with Saint-Marc, we find, it is true, mention of the death of Fouquet on March 23rd, 1680, but in his later correspondence, Louvois never says the late M. Fouquet, but speaks of him as usual as M. Fouquet, simply. Most historians have given as a fact that Fouquet was interred in the same vault as his father in the chapel of Saint-Francois de Sale, in the convent church belonging to the Sisters of the Order of the Visitation Sainte-Marie, founded in the beginning of the 17th century by Madame du Chantal. But proof to the contrary exists, for the subterranean portion of St. Francis Chapel was closed in 1786, the last person interred there being Adelaide Felicity Briard, with whom ended the House of Sillery. The convent was shut up in 1790, and the church given over to the Protestants in 1802, who continued to respect the tombs. In 1836, the cathedral chapter of Bourges claimed the remains of one of their archbishops buried there in the time of the Sisters Saint Marie. On this occasion, all the coffins were examined and all the inscriptions carefully copied, but the name of Nicolas Fouquet is absent. Voltaire says in his Dictionnaire Philosophique article, Anna, It is most remarkable that no one knows where the celebrated Fouquet was buried. But in spite of all these coincidences, this carefully constructed theory was wrecked on the same point on which the theory that the prisoner was either the Duke of Mammoth 
or the Comte de Vimandois, came to grief. This, a letter from Barbezieu, dated 13 August 1691, in which occur the words, The prisoner whom you have had in charge for twenty years. According to this testimony, which Jacob had successfully used against his predecessors, the prisoner referred to could not have been Fouquet, who completed his 27th year of captivity in 1691, if still alive. We now have impartially set before our readers all the opinions which have been held in regard to the solution of this formidable enigma. For ourselves, we hold the belief that the man in the iron mask stood on the steps of the throne. Although the mystery cannot be said to be definitely cleared up, one thing stands out firmly established among the mass of conjecture we have collected together, and that is that wherever the prisoner appeared, he was ordered to wear a mask on pain of death. His features, therefore, might during half a century have brought about his recognition from one end of France to the other. Consequently, during the same space of time, there existed in France a face resembling the prisoners known through all her provinces, even to her most secluded isle. Whose face could this be, if not that of Louis the Fourteenth, twin brother of the man in the iron mask? To nullify this simple and natural conclusion, strong evidence will be required. Our task has been limited to that of an examining judge at a trial, and we feel sure that our readers will not be sorry that we have left them to choose amid all the conflicting explanations of the puzzle. No consistent narrative that we might have concocted would, it seems to us, have been half as interesting to them as to allow them to follow the devious paths opened up by those who entered on the search for the heart of the mystery. Everything connected with the masked prisoner arouses the most vivid curiosity. And what end had we in view? Was it not to denounce a crime and to brand the perpetrator thereof? The facts as they stand are sufficient for our object and speak more eloquently than if used to adorn a tale or to prove an ingenious theory. End of chapter 1, part 5. End of The Man in the Iron Mask, an essay.